Well, I want to share with you a, an old Jewish tale. A rabbi asked the Lord, he said, I want you to show me the difference between heaven and hell. So the Lord said, well, first of all, let me show you what hell is. And God gave a vision, and the rabbi saw this empty room. Uh, he walked through that room and went into another room, and there was this large table, and there were individuals seated around the table, and they all looked extremely malnourished. And in their hands were these really long spoons that were longer than their arms, and in the middle of the table was a pot of stew. And they could dip the spoon into the stew, but because of the length of the spoon, they, they couldn't feed themselves, so they were starving. And he said to the rabbi, this is a picture of hell. And he said, now let me show you what heaven is really like. And so he created another vision, and, and the rabbi walked into a room, and it was similar to the last room that he saw, and there were people sitting around a table, but they all looked like they were well-nourished, and they were laughing, and they were having joyful times. It was like they were enjoying each other's company. They had the same long-handled spoons as they did in hell. And God said that, that the biggest difference is that they've learned how to adapt. Instead of trying to always feed themselves, they've learned now how to feed each other, their community. And that's the, the whole sense of our message this morning, is to understand what that means uh, to be into community. Uh, people want to be wanted, but the truth is that we live in a world that's filled with loneliness. No matter where you go, um, my guess is that you'll find an example of something happening in your life or something past in your life that has created a sense of loneliness. <clears throat> and I've wondered a little bit about what's behind the loneliness that we feel. And I've come up with a, a couple of thoughts with that, and maybe some of these might make some sense with you, but loneliness is one of those things that really, really grabs us. And one of them is the changing family. Throughout generations, the family used to be what we call the nuclear family, where everybody lived together and they did things together. Then it, then it turned into being, you know, the, the, um, the generational family, where they came together and, and they, they did things. And now, all of a sudden, it's, it's a, a family that is kind of scattered more, and we, we live in different places and we don't really have a whole lot of common. And even in our families, we find that there's a sense of loneliness. Loneliness also comes from the disappearance of neighborhoods. You know, when I look at uh, some of these new developments that are going up, and not only do I see these magnificent homes being built, but I'm noticing that every home has a fence behind it. Have you, have you noticed that? And, and it's not like the old chain link fences when I grew up, but it's these large privacy fences that you can't see around. So even in our neighborhoods, we, we've, we've moved into a, a place of loneliness where we build these fences around our yards and stuff that basically says we don't want anybody involved in our life. We just kind of want to do things on our own, and we want to do them in our own privacy. We've seen loneliness come out of the fragmentation of lives. It used to be many, many years ago that, that the person you worked with was the same person that, that you went to, uh, to church with, or you went to school with the same person you went to church with, or the people that you lived around were at the same church that you were with. And now all of a sudden we're seeing so much of a diversity in that, and there's no commonality that goes with that. So we're seeing a, a fragmentation of our lives that really challenges the things that we have in common with one another. There's the spectator culture. This is one that is emerging mainly from technology. And what we have found in the spectator culture is that, that everything is at our fingertips, that we don't have to go out of the house. We don't have to go anywhere. We can watch games on TV. We can download video games. We can use our smart devices to, to, to do all sorts of things, and we never even have to leave the home. And we've gone inward instead of outward. We, we stay in our homes rather than going outside of our homes. And that has created a great sense of loneliness. We also see that societal values, 
uh, when material rewards become the most important thing that we pursue. You know, we live in a culture that, that basically says, live the American dream, the more you have, defines your success, and the more that you are, says that you're better than someone else. So our societal values have changed. And as we're pursuing more and trying to climb more, what we're really doing is we're moving away from the more things that are important to us, which is friendships and families, because we are working longer hours. We are doing more things that are keeping us disconnected with those that we love. Even the expectations that we have with our church and our churches, capital C. When I think about how, how loneliness is created with the disconnects that we have with our churches, uh, it just really disturbs my soul with how we become lonely in our churches. And here's how that works. We, we come in our churches and, and all of a sudden we, we remember all the things of what church used to be in history or maybe when we were younger. And then all of a sudden we're coming to the reality that, that whereas the church's message doesn't change, how the church needs to deliver the message and the vehicle in which it uses does change. How music trends change and those things and, and how the church needs to be real into its community. And therefore, sometimes that creates loneliness because people disagree with that and they leave their churches. And, and that creates severing of relationships and friendships. And the saddened part about that is when they go to a new church, they discover over time that church itself is trying to struggle with the same way that their old church was and nothing has changed. Loneliness is a huge part of our life. And last week, we learned that, that the Bible specifically says to us that, that we're not to be lonely at all that we are to be held in common, and that we are truly community. And we built that off of the foundational passage out of Acts chapter 2, where uh, Luke writes some very important words uh, when he says this. He comes in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, and he says these words. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So we know that they were together listening and, and working through the word of God, and they were sharing food and fellowship together. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now listen to this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. So there's no loneliness in the design of what God has for the church and what God has for real community. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So we know that community is not built upon just something that we're casually committed to, but there is something that requires us to have a deep sense of commitment, as we see here in this story. They broke bread in their homes, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is where we get the term small group. It's, it's biblical. It's not just the flavor of the month that the church just conjures up that says, hey, let's do something different and try to get people connected with. Small groups and the foundation of that is exactly what God created. Now, here's the importance of what small groups do for us. It creates an environment where we know we can be accepted. It creates an environment where we have trust. It creates a place where we can share our vulnerabilities with one another, where we can actually confess our sins and not be judged or believe it's going to go on Facebook or the latest tweet. And we can come together in that kind of community and love each other with the greatest sense of love and to affirm each other as we move in that particular walk of our life. 
Henry Nouwen is a, uh, was a, a Catholic priest, uh, a man whose writings I absolutely adore. He is one of my favorite uh, theologians, and uh, he writes an awful lot on uh, peaceable relationships with each other, with God, with community and love. And this comes out of uh, an article that he wrote called The Mosaic That Makes Us Visible to God. And this uh, comes out of Can You Drink from the Cup? And let me share with you what Nowen says about community. He says, nothing is sweet or easy about community. I would agree with that. Community is a fellowship of people who don't hide their joys or sorrows, but make them visible to each other in a gesture of hope. In community, we say life is full of gains and losses, joys and sorrows, ups and downs, but we do not have to live it alone. We want to drink from our cup together and and thus celebrate the truth and the wounds of our individual lives, which seem intolerable when lived alone, become sources of healing when we live them as part of a fellowship of mutual care. When my hurts are affecting me to a point, I can't deal with it on my own. And now one says, when we share our hurts with others, we're building in real community. Community is like a large mosaic. Take a look at, in, in your mind what he says here. Every little piece seems so insignificant. One piece is bright red, another cold blue or dull green, another warm purple, another sharp yellow, another shining gold. Some look precious, others ordinary. Some look valuable and others are completely worthless. Some look gaudy, others delicate. As individual stones, we can do little with them except compare them and judge their beauty and value. So on their loan, we just look at the stone and judge its beauty and value. He says, when, however, all these little stones are brought together in one big mosaic, portraying the face of Christ, who would ever question the importance of any one of them? If one of them, even the least spectacular one, is missing, the face of Jesus Christ is incomplete. Together, the one mosaic, each little stone is indispensable and makes a unique contribution to the glory of God. That's community, now one writes, a fellowship of little people who gather to make God visible to the entire world. This is really important for us because um, as I've journeyed in my Christian life, um, I've, I've gone through sects of, um, of different kinds of ways of what people have thought. And there, there's, there are groups of people who are out there who say that our faith journey is solely a me and Jesus thing. As long as I personally am right with the Lord, then everything is okay. You know what? That's not what the Bible says. Yes, we're to be in relationship with Christ, but we cannot be in relationship with Christ unless we're in relationship with each other. And everything that I read in Scripture from the beginning in Genesis to the end book of Revelation, time and time and time again, our entire faith is built upon the fact that believers come together as one and that we need each other. And through our woundedness and through our highs and our celebrations and even in the midst of our brokenness, we find out that we can love one another through that. In fact, the New Testament alone, 55 times, you wanna know what I do in my spare time? I count this stuff up. 55 times in the New Testament, it's commanded to us to love one another. And we see the significance of what comes with that. So God's intent is for us to love one another and to be Christians together in our journey in knowing and loving him. And God expects us to band together. He expects us to be caring. He expects us to be nurturing. He expects us to be loving. He expects us to be encouraging. He expects us to be growing. He expects us to be real with one another, not superficial, 
And in that kind of relationship, we begin to see the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul writes in Galatians 6.2. He says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. When you hold on to my burden, when I bear your burden, that's when we begin to hold into the fullness of Christ. And the question becomes, unless we can kind of think this through, and unless we actually take the church backwards in order to move forwards, there's nothing at all in the life of the church that allows this to happen until we get ourselves into a small group. It's also true with numerous other one commands. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 13, 8, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In uh, Romans 12, give preference to one another. In 1 Corinthians 12, have the same care for one another. In today's churches, there has got to be a setting where we can live into those words. And here at St. Paul, we say that that is in small groups. Now, I have people who will say to me, you know, well, you know, what about my large class that meets on a Sunday morning, all that? Listen, you know, those are great things. Sunday classes or Sunday school, whatever you want to term it, are, are wonderful things. Our weeknight classes that we hold where we bring much people together, even in a room like this in our services where we bring almost 1,000 people together every week, that's very important. But, but here's what a small group does. A small group creates the atmosphere where we can trust one another. It's very hard to call upon somebody in the congregation to come up here on the stage and for them to not know everybody who's in the room and not have a vested trust relationship and to open their hearts and to tell you where they're hurting in their life. It's just not going to happen. But you know what? In small groups, that's where it does happen. And we begin to see the significance that comes from that. It's in those interpersonal relationships. You know, John writes, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. It's when we engage in actually assuming, taking on and carrying one another's burdens and rejoicing and sharing insight and foresight and all those things that we have, edifying each other, helping each other, listening to one another, that's where we see community being spawned. So, so why are small groups so effective? And why are we placing such a heavy emphasis on this? It's because it's what the Bible says. It's this grounded in Scripture and it's, it's, it's a significant thing. So small groups restore relationships. Small groups restore relationships. Let's go back to the Genesis story. In the beginning, God and Adam's relationship is fractured when Adam commits sin. So not only is the vertical relationship between God and humanity fractured because of the fall, but then all of a sudden it creates a, an interpersonal fracture, a horizontal fracture between Adam and Eve as well. So not only have we fractured the relationship with God in sin, but we've fractured the relationship with one another. And what a small group does is a small group allows you to come together to heal that so that you can heal the relationship between you and God and you can heal the relationships between you and other people. You can learn to love neighbor as yourself and love the Lord God with all of your heart. Small groups remind us that, that working together is better than doing it alone. Think for a minute with me for a second. Think of a time in your life, whatever it was, where you tried to do something in life that was pretty big on your own, 
whether it was trying to do a, if you're in a marriage and, and there was only one of you pouring into the relationship and you were doing it alone, think about that. If, if it was um, uh, uh, some sort of interpersonal relationship or if it was just challenge and struggles with the faith, whatever it was, when you try to deal with it on your own, it is impossible to do that. You know, I've had a, a struggle in my life, and I'm continuing to struggle with that, where I found that the, that the truth is that, that I've been trying to, to deal with it on my own because I thought I was strong enough to do it. And I'm learning every day, and by the grace and love of the words of my wife, I've learned that I can't do it on my own and that, that God wants us to do this together with him. And, and we get a sense of strength in doing that. We find out that the writer of Ecclesiastes says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Think about that moment when you, when you have had that crash in your life and you had nobody there that, that loved you or cared about you or that you could call out to because you were afraid or you didn't want them to know what was going on in your business. You're alone in that feeling. But, but, but also, if you lie down together, you keep each other warm. But how can one keep uh, another warm? And, and though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You see, it's, it's community. It's coming together. It's getting away from this machismo or whatever we want to call it. Of We can do this on our own. We can't. And by the grace of God and the lives of other fellow believers, we can do it. Here's another one. Small groups follow the example of Jesus. So if you're not going to trust in my words, then, then let's look at the biblical context. I love it. Every time we realize it, Jesus established a small group. Twelve disciples. He poured his life into it. And it wasn't just that he did the teaching to that. They listened to him in his anguish as well. Let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. We just came out of the Lenten season into Easter. Recall when Jesus goes to the garden and he's in agony and all of the disciples are there. And he says to Peter, James, and John, he says, come with me now. Leave the others there and come with me. He takes his small group with him. And he says, stay right here because I'm in anguish. And I'm feeling the cares and the pressures of the world of sin upon my shoulders and that it is overwhelming to my spirit, he said, at that particular moment. My soul is grieved to the point of death. Remain here. A small group of people that the Lord himself could entrust and the ones who knew he was God, but also the humanity struggling, divinity and humanity at that moment, realizing that they were part of communion. Small groups allow us to minister to groups of people. Uh, in a couple of chapters of Daniel, in, in chapter 1 and 2, four men are, are banded together. They're a source group, and they are going to withstand everything that is being thrown at them, and they are not going to renounce their faith. If it was only one of them, the temptation would have been there. But because they stayed together, they were able to endure the greatest tests of the faith in their life. If you've ever watched a flock of geese, it's, it's amazing how God can use an animal like a geese or goose or, yeah, goose, geese together, how God can use that to encourage us and how God, through the life of the animal kingdom, can say, this is how you, my greatest creation, needs to be. They fly in what kind of formation? What letter? 
the V formation. And as they fly that V formation, scientifically what they've come to understand is that, that the wind resistance changes. And by flying in a V formation, did you know that a flock of geese can actually fly 71% further flying as a flock than they could on their own? What they also came scientifically to understand is that when the, the lead goose flying with the geese is, is flapping his wings and he gets tired, he actually drops, he or she actually drops to the back of the line and somebody else comes to the front of the line and continues forward. Did you know that? So that way, you know, he's getting weak, drops to the back, and another comes there. We also know that, that geese honk at each other. Do you know why they honk at each other? They're encouraging the leader. They're honking to say to the leader, you need to keep us moving, keep us going. We're behind you. We're here with you. We're encouraging you. So we need to encourage our leaders. So guys, give me a honk real quick. There we go. Okay. So, 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 so he, they encourage that, and that's the important part of that. But here's something that you may not know. Whenever there's a goose in the flock of geese who feels that they cannot go on, if they're wounded, injured, or just too tired, they drop out of the line. Did you know that two other geese come out of that line and fly down with them? And they stay there with the goose that is hurting or wounded or can't continue the journey until that goose gets enough strength to get back to flying again or that goose dies. Did you know that? Community. God uses animals to teach us his greatest creation. And we've got to get this. It's so important as we look at that. You know, it goes back to the lead text this morning out of Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though you may be overpowered, two can defend a quarter of three strands is not easily broken. You know, small groups. You know, today and over the next couple of weeks, you're gonna have an opportunity after this service uh, to exit here to your left and my right into our courtyard. And I want to encourage you to do that over these next couple of weeks because a lot of you um, need to start thinking about getting into small groups. And I want to encourage you to do that. Someone asked me one time, Pastor, why are you so passionate about this? And, and is this going to make our church, you know, bigger, wider? And, and let me tell you, you know, my role as your lead shepherd is not to make the church wider. It's not. And if you think that that's what my job is, is to make the church wider in number, then there's a theological disconnect that we have, and let's get that straight this morning. I'm called, and Pastor Pam is called, we're called as shepherds of this church to make the people of God deeper. It's not about how wide we are, it's how deep we are. And as we go deeper with God and deeper with each other, we are building genuine community. And I love it when we think about like today, you know, that invitation over the next couple of days, uh, next couple of weeks to go out onto the patio. And I want to invite you after worship, please don't run off to lunch. Go onto the patio. There are people who are there that can talk to you about how to get you connected to a small group. And don't allow your mind for one instant to say, I don't need to do that. Folks, I think I've pointed out to you, the Bible says we do. And we've got to start growing deeper and nurturing one another with fellow brothers and sisters where we can actually build community and, and lovingly confess our sins and be restored and not be judged and have friendships and endearments grow in that. 